On this episode of the Tough Juice Podcast, we had the opportunity to sit down with the CEO, the boss man himself of Spring Hill Entertainment, Maverick Carter. And he talked about so many things, got into the, the importance of ownership and what is ownership. He also talked about some of the guys that he idolized growing up and some of his biggest mentors in the game, ranging from Jay-Z and so many more. And also, LeBron James learned how to drive in a Capri Chevy, and he taught him? This is crazy. Be sure to subscribe to the Tough Juice Podcast on the Himalaya app or wherever you get your pods. First and foremost, man, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to dive into, like, your beginning. You know, a lot of people see you on social media and see you in the, you know, the pictures and in the frame and everything. But, you know, I want to talk about just the beginning and how you came <clears throat> up. Um, well, I came up uh, from Akron, Ohio. Grew up um, north side of Akron. Um, is really <clears throat> the foundation of everything I am of who I am today, the way I think, the way I am. Um, raised by my mom and my dad and a whole lot of aunts and uncles. My dad has six siblings and they're all very close in age. Um, my mom had two siblings and they all had kids. So it was a lot of us first cousins running around. And because my mom and dad both are the youngest of their siblings, I was like the youngest. So. Being the youngest, I got a lot of special treatment and treated like the baby, but I also got a lot of, you know, I had to grow up faster than everybody else because when I, by the time I was hanging, you know, I was 10 or 11 and my cousins were 14, 15, 16, 17. I wanted to hang with them and go to the mall on Saturdays with them. So I had this very cool thing of kind of being babied and being, you know, felt special, but also having to grow up fast. And, you know, my, my mom was a social worker for 28 years. Wow. Um, retired and uh, did that job and raised me. My dad been in my life as one of my best friends now. Um, he was around. We lived together. They were together until I was about five. Then they broke up. We moved in with my grandmother. Um, I lived there. Then when I was uh, later in life, about fifth grade, my dad got arrested, went to jail for um, six years, came back out. Um, my dad is a guy, very special guy. He's, he's had open heart surgery three times in his life. Um, been shot a couple of times, stabbed a couple of times, dropped out of school when he was in ninth grade. Um, so not a formally educated guy at all. Uh, learned how to read, you know, like to a point where he could read a whole newspaper in the federal penitentiary. And... Um, but he's just one of the smartest people I've ever met just because he has a natural ability to figure things out. And he has a curiosity that's just kind of uncontainable. And that's where became the base and the foundation of everything I am is that curiosity that I learned from him and his mom, my grandmother, who raised me, who um, ran after hours. We were talking about earlier on Fridays and Saturday nights in her basement. Um, you could buy liquor. She'd give the food away for free, and then there'd be a table for craps, a table for poker, and a table for pity pat. And she took a cut of the game, of all the games. <laughs> so I was there every Friday and Saturday night because my parents were 22 when they had me, so they were still out in the streets having fun. Still relatively young. They're really, really, really young. So yeah. on the weekends, I got dropped off Friday when my mom got off work, 5, 30, 6 o'clock, or sometimes straight from school. 
I go to my grandmother's and I see my mom again probably Monday after school because my grandmother was, it was like a built-in babysitter. There was, you know, 50, 100, 150 people there. So <clears throat> that was my first job cleaning up uh, in the morning when, the, when all the players would be done playing. And, but that foundation is what I grew up, grew up with and, and I still use the foundation for everything that I do today. Now, I want to rewind and then go back and come back to this uh, point which you just made with your mom being a social worker. Was that like kind of the base of, like did she come home and share those stories with you? She uh, would. Yeah. She would come home and, and share some of the stories with us for sure. She was a, she worked back then, we called the welfare office. Today okay. they call it, it's for the county, like Department of Jobs and Family Services towards the end of her career. But the beginning she worked in the fraud department. So as I'm sure you know, when we were kids, people got paper food stamps. So when you would mail those, they would get literally mailed in the mail. And uh, people would claim that theirs got stolen or the mailman. And then they wanted an, an, um, more sent. Well, she was in the department that would research that and go out and meet with people. And people would come in the, the, the county building where she worked. And she would talk to them and uh, interview them and ask them why they thought they needed food stamps. And she did that for 28 years. And she would definitely come home and tell me stories. And I think um, her stories would, A, be motivating a bit because of, you know, but also very heartfelt because what she she didn't make a lot of money doing what she was doing, you know, I don't know, $25,000, $30,000 a year, but it was something very noble. Um, and it was a job, it was a job for her, but it was noble, but it was also motivating that, you know, I would go down to visit her at work and you would just see people with kids and, and and not being able to take care of them, and I didn't never want to end up being like that. Yeah. So as a young Maverick Carter, you know, in Akron, growing up, like, what was your yeah. dream? Like, what did you want to be? My dream. Um, it's funny. I was just talking about this. My dream originally, um, like most young black boys growing up in the hood, loving sports, I wanted to be a, a basketball player or a football yeah. player. That was my yeah. dream at the beginning. And then, um, you know, in, in, in our neighborhood, you don't get to see anything else, really. But, like, people with jobs, like my mom, which is not a, you know, if you have ambition, you're like, I want something more than that. She was making enough to keep the lights on and keep food. We didn't ever go without lights or water or food. But we had rough times where... You know, might go a day or two without the heat on or but we always have food, but I was ambitious and wanted more. But the only people in our neighborhoods that you've seen had ambition to get more were drug dealers. No doubt. And I didn't necessarily want to do that because I, I um my dad went to jail my dad was a drug dealer, went to jail when I was in the in the fifth grade. So I knew how that kinda I got I got a real sense of that early, like the feds coming in our house and, and arresting my dad. But so but I didn't see anything else, so I was like, I didn't have any ambition besides that until um, in the year in between my sixth and seventh grade, I got to play AAU basketball. And the, one of the guys who I played on the team with, his dad was the athletic trainer for the Cleveland Indians. He played on our team, and they lived in this beautiful big house in the, in the nicest suburb outside of Akron. And um, we got to go to a game one time with his dad, and I got to see his dad. And it was the first time I realized that 
there were jobs in, not even around, but literally in sports where, so I instantly connected, oh, here's a big house in this beautiful neighborhood and he works in sports, but he's not a player. So I was like, oh, you can work in sports and not be, you don't have to be the guy hitting the home runs. He was in there taping ankles and uh, taping wrists and and, and he got treated like one of the players. As you know, the trainer gets treated like one of the guys. He had the gear and everything on. It was the first time I realized that that existed. And at that very moment, all the way until I was in college, I wanted to be an athletic trainer. That was like, I went home and told my mom, that was my dream forever. I wanted to be an athletic trainer. That's crazy. That's the first time I ever heard that. Yeah. Because I thought it was so cool. And I thought it was so um, amazing that I saw his house. So I'm like, I know he does well. And um, and he gets treated like one of the players, but he doesn't play. So it was my first exposure to that. Uh, I was 11 years old. Yeah. I, it's funny you mention that because I got exposed to something different when I went to prep school. And I, you know, I come from a, a good family, <laughs> kind of similar to your experiences in Akron. My grandmother and my mother raised me. And then I go to MCI and I'm staying with a host family. And every weekend I would get exposed to something different. And all of a sudden I'm seeing that, you know, it's nurses and physical therapy, doing physical therapy on some of the athletes at the University of Maine. But having guest houses and fucking uh, vacation homes and just having this different way of living. And I thought growing up, the only way you can be successful selling drugs, hooping, or being an NFL player. That was just my, that's life. But I didn't know that you can get exposed to other things and actually make these dreams come. So I I echo exactly what you're saying, and I'm following the lines of exactly what you said. But uh, just tell me, like, when did you know that you wanted to play the game of basketball and that you could play the game of basketball at a high level? I... I love basketball since, I mean, my mom says it goes back to when I was a kid. I was fortunate. I had two older cousins um, on my mom's side and my dad's side, one uh, a male and one a female, who went to the local high school in our neighborhood we grew up, and they were both really good basketball players. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both would let me, when I was a kid, their coaches would let me come around. I'm, I mean, this is back to like, I mean, they graduated high school in 91, so this must have started in the late 80s when I was like six years old. I would go to practice and just hang out. And, you know, from that moment on, I just loved basketball. And when I realized that I, you know, I played college not on the high level like you did, but I played mid-major college basketball. And the first time I realized that I could really play, uh, that I was pretty good, is I went to to five-star basketball camp. As a, um, I went as a freshman and did very well, made the all-star team. I went back after my sophomore season, and um, I happened to play on a team with Jay Will. And Jay came to camp, and obviously you were on that level too, so you know Jay was like, I mean, as far as it goes, that I played against, he was the best high school point guard I've ever seen. Wow. By, by far, I mean. And we played at... Um, we played on the same team at Five Star, and we won the championship. What position was you was you playing? I could play like a combo guard. Okay, but because I played with Jay, I played off the ball. He, I mean, you want the ball in Jay's hands, and um, and Jay was just incredible. And I mean, he was you know from New Jersey. I remember he came to camp, was hype, and what school was he going to go to? He obviously, eventually chose Duke, but he, me, and him 
play together, and I was a year younger than him. He's a year older than me in school. But I just, the type of player I was, I was never like, I couldn't jump the highs, I can't run the fastest, I'm not the best shooter, dribbler. But I could do everything pretty good. But the thing, I, do, I know the game really well, so I know I'm rolling with him. Just get to the lane, run the floor, get to the open spots, because he he do all the hard stuff. <laughs> if you can just get to the lane and make a shot, and I did that all that whole week of camp, made the all-star team. We won the championship. Never forget, we played Steve Blake's team in the, in the final. And Jay had this thing with Steve Blake. I, I, you know, it continued on in the college, but he wanted to dominate Steve. And he was the first guy I seen that was like a fierce competitor and like the best and, and wanted to prove he was the best every minute. And we won. And that after that summer, I started getting letters from every school you could think of because we won. And I did my job very well. And Jay and I made this connection. We're still friends to this day going back. I mean, that was when I was 16, when I was 22 years ago. And uh, at that moment, I realized that I could play. I could play on in college, and I wanted to keep pursuing basketball as, like, the thing. Because before that, I played football. I'm from Ohio. We play football. Everybody plays football. Everybody, yeah. Everybody plays. I mean, they put footballs in your incubator when you're a baby <laughs> if you're a boy in Ohio. So I love football. And I played football all the way through high school and thought about playing college football. But at that moment, I decided I'm going to play college basketball. So check it out. I had a lot of business moguls on this show, the Tough Juice podcast, and it's been a privilege to see how they evaluate talent. LinkedIn, hiring the right people is one of the best ways to help your business grow, but it shouldn't take time away from your priorities. With LinkedIn jobs, it doesn't have to. With some of the tools, LinkedIn jobs are literally changing the hiring process. LinkedIn jobs screen candidates with the exact skills you're looking for so you can hire the right person fast. Things like collaborations, creativity, adaptability, LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of the qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. That's how LinkedIn makes sure your job post is seen with people that you want to hire. People with the skills and interests that will help your business grow. It's no wonder a person is hired every eight seconds on LinkedIn and why companies rated LinkedIn jobs the number one hiring platform for delivering quality hires. So check it out. Find the right person today on LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Visit linkedin.com slash tough juice. Again, that's linkedin.com slash tough juice. You heard it first here. Terms and conditions apply. Did that always help you, like, the game? Like like you said, you wasn't the fastest, you wasn't this or that, but you evaluated the game a little different than everybody else. Did that help you in life also? Yeah, absolutely. It helped me. In, I mean, I approach life the same way. I don't, you know, I, I, I go to work every day at my company, and um, we have people at the company. Everybody at the company is better than me at something. I'm good enough that I can contribute. Um, to everything, but what I try and bring is the same thing I did on the court was like a holistic view of what's going on, the 100,000 feet view of what's going on, where we're going. And I approached, I played basketball the same way. I was never the best at anything. I was like, I'd be on the court. I was never the best at anything, but I could play with anybody because I know how to play. And, And, you know, as you know, great players like yourself is, the most thing you want is somebody who knows how to play. Because oh, you'll do all the hard shit. You, 
you know, we need a bucket, we can throw it to you or to, you know, I play with LeBron or play with Jay. Well, you can throw it to a good player and go get that's that's hard. Yeah. But then all the little eat the all the little things that are come easy and natural to me, which as you know are hard to some players, I just thrive at doing those. I like you know, I, I know how to screen. I know how to rebound. I can guard a bigger player. I can guard a smaller player. Like, I just throw, I pass very well. So that's how I approach life and business also is, like, I'm never going to be the best, you know, marketer, engineer, or at products. We have the best at our company in that, but I contribute a little bit. But I try and see the whole field. Yeah, speaking of seeing the whole field, bring us up to speed on your relationship with LeBron and how you how you guys first met. Yeah, we um um LeBron and I go back a long way, literally 30 years now. Yeah. Um we met at my eighth birthday party. Um he was from I was from the our, my neighborhood's on a hill, it's called North Hill. And at the top of the hill is like a neighborhood of homes, small apartment clusters, um, all low income um neighborhood where my grandmother bought a house there in the 60s and eventually gave it to my mom, who actually gave it to me. I, I still own the house. But at the bottom of the hill was the, was the housing project. So we would go down there to play with those kids, and those kids would come up. It was like it's one neighborhood. It's just separated literally by a hill. And LeBron was from the the housing projects at the bottom of the hill, and it's literally called The Bottom. That's what we call it. Like if, if you're from Akron and LeBron knows you're from Akron, you say, where you're from, he was saying from The Bottom, which, you know, it literally was at the bottom of the hill, and it was also socially and economically yeah. at the bottom. So we met um, just being in that neighborhood. Then he moved around. Then in high school, I'm older than him. He came back. My senior year was his freshman year. Um, and that year, we really connected and bonded and became more of like a brotherly relationship. Um, it was obvious he was going to be a much better basketball player than me. But for that one year, ironically... I could be as good as him on any given night, but he was way better than me, and we had a really good team. We really bonded. Our team went 27-0. We won a state title and um, finished, I think, top 15 in the country in USA Today. And, and then he went on to obviously do everything he, he's become. But since then, our relationship that we had back to high school has kind of been the same ever since, a little bit of older brother, uh, younger brother thing, like going back to things like he learned how to drive in my car. I had a, I had a, a 84 Chevy Caprice that I still have, actually. Um, clean, right? Yeah, there. super clean, by the way. I had it restored. <laughs> Made a little money. I was able to restore it. Now it's restored. Nice. Um, but I got it, as I call it, the heavy Chevy. Um, but I taught LeBron how to drive in that Chevy. He learned how to drive because I was senior. I was 18. I had a license. I had a car. And he would come stay with me, and I would let him, you know, on the way home, there was like my street going down the street. There's like a every intersection. There's a stop sign. There's like four from the busy street to my house. So I would let him hit all those stop signs. So we just had that connection. That bond has been the same way ever since. And now you know we're he's got a family. I got a family. We're older now, but we still have that same connection. I learned from him. He learns from me, and we just been exploring the world together ever since uh, going back thirty years now. Yeah. When did you make the decision to? basically stop pursuing your athletic career and take interest on the business side and say, you know what, yeah. LeBron, I got you. I um, I didn't really go full go at it, but I got an internship in between my freshman and sophomore year at Nike, and I moved to Beaverton for three months. 
And that was the first time taking the story back, I realized, oh, because I had seen athletic training, then I saw this other part of the sports business, which is kind of marketing and working with athletes to move products and sell things. And specifically doing it at Nike, who's the best in the world at it of all time, right? They built a $200 billion business off of the idea of building products for athletes and then telling those stories. So I went there, did that internship, and I wasn't like at that moment, I wasn't ready to be done with basketball, but I transferred from Western Michigan. I went back to the University of Akron. My high school coach got a job. But going Division One, Division One, I, I had to sit out a year. So all I could do was practice that year that I transferred. And um, that following year, so it would have been going into my junior years when I kind of made the decision, like, you know what? I'm not going to play in the NBA. Maybe I could play overseas. Um but I'd rather get my career started. And I had an opportunity because of my um, time at Nike and most importantly because of LeBron. I'd become LeBron. And he knew I had the experience for my internship. And then I, I had consulted with Nike for the year I set out. And he was like, bro, whatever shoe company I sign with, I'm going to put it in my deal that you go to, that they offer you a job and you go work there. That's crazy. So I was like, I'm going to have that opportunity. So I was like, instead of, play a couple more years of college and go overseas and fuck around. Who knows what that could be, five, eight, three, ten years. I might as well just get my career started now. So yeah. I can start to so I can start to build something that, that can last. That's great. Like who who thinks like that as a teenager? One LeBron came out of high school. Yep. And was that did y'all have some mentor or somebody schooling y'all on ownership and stuff like that all the um, way back then? To position yourself like that? Yeah, not not necessarily a, a, one specific person, but we had a great group of people starting with, you know, he was 18, I was 20 or 21, I'm three years older than him. Well, he was 17 then, Dang. so I was 20. Um, but we had his mom was always great, Glow. We had Lynn Merritt, who you know, Lynn, I'm sure, who works at Nike yeah, still to amazing. this day, who I interned for, who's been a mentor of mine and his since then. Uh, we had spent time with Jay-Z, so... And it wasn't, but when I, well, I hesitated at first because they were mentors, but it wasn't like Jay was giving us, sitting us down, like, do it this way and do it that way. We were just, we were just fortunate enough and he let us be in his circle at certain times, not all the time. And we were able to learn and watch and study and see what he was doing. And Lynn was helping us too, for sure. How important was, you know, ownership and in, in, in everything that you guys was doing? At the very beginning, it wasn't at all because we didn't even know what that meant. Um, but when I left Nike, so I, when LeBron turned pro, I moved and worked in Portland and worked there for two years or two and a half years. And then when I left, that's when we really started digging into the idea of like ownership. And, and you know, the word ownership is like, it's thrown around as like owning a, owning a piece of something or owning... A business, but we thought about it as like ownership in everything that you do, not just not just for money. And it's 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 less about ownership and more about kind of value creation. And if you're going to create value, making sure um, you get to share or own all of that value that you create. Because as people, we all, you know, whether you work a job or you play an MBA or whatever you do. Um, you create value. You're creating value. So you played basketball. How many seasons did you play? Uh, 15. You played 15 years. So you played on franchises. You played in the NBA. 
And you were a part of the value chain that has, you know, the franchises are worth drastically more, the NBA is worth more. And you always have to be balancing like, okay, how much am I worth? And it's not just about getting making money, but am I, I'm creating value. How am I capturing that value? How am I using it? So it really, be, it really became about that. I don't think back then we were sophisticated enough to articulate it that way. So we just used the word ownership. Um, but that's what it really was about as I look back on it. When you when you when you was going through the process of it, was you evaluating some of the guys that was signing certain deals or was going through certain situations ahead of y'all? Absolutely, I wouldn't even say some all. all. I mean, every I the mean, good and the bad, obviously. Every single guy. I mean, you were in the league then too. You know, it was just a different way of thinking back yeah. then. And um, the thing that I studied most was like. It was um, it was value creation and and who gets to share in that value and how does it get created and, and who owns it and then also thinking about what does the end look like right you to even though we we were at the beginning you have to start thinking about the end now so what does the end look like and as I you know it wasn't like um, you know this like supernatural like oh my god why was it you know like this uh I'm, I'm lost for words but this premonition we had of like how it should look it was just literally we were looking at the end of some guy's careers going like oh that's not how we wanted to end. <laughs> no doubt so if you don't want it to end like it's like a bit like a i always tell people it's like you know i produce movies and tv shows now it's a bit of this you do the, some of the same it's like being a detective a detective starts at the end they start where the crime happened, and then they go backwards, right? So they know someone was shot in this room, and it was a nine millimeter gun because we got a nine millimeter case. Now they got to backtrack and find a nine millimeter gun, find the find the yeah. motive. Blah, 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 yeah. blah. So we, I was just looking at the end, going, "Oh, I okay." So I'm at the end. I, if I go to the end right now, and I see how this guy's career is ending, how it's ending for his friends, the people who've been around him. And I'm looking at this going, this is not what I want. So now I'm now I just gotta go backwards <laughs> and build it backwards. You know what I mean? No doubt. Build it backwards from where I don't wanna be. How important was it for you guys to change that narrative? Um, at the beginning, it wasn't even about changing the narrative. It was just selfish. Like literally, you know, selfish in the sense of the word is like, I want it different for myself. Yeah. Right? I didn't start and I'm speaking for us, so I think uh, LeBron would say the same, and Rich and Randy was like, we didn't start thinking about, oh, the narrative is changing until probably we were five or 10 years into it, or maybe it was sooner, but for us, we didn't think about that. We just thought about like, oh, we just, I don't, I want this to be different for us, for, for, for me, for us. I want this to be different. We were just like, this is what we should be doing. And then it was like, oh, the narrative is changing on what a basketball player, an athlete, his friends, blah, 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 could be doing. So then we became conscious of it. But at the beginning, we were just like, this is what's good for us as a team, as a unit. What was the biggest hurdle for you guys, like, moving like that as a unit together? There were a lot. Um, there still are big hurdles. I, I mean, honestly, um, there's a lot to name. But, you know, there was everything from... Definitely um, a lot of agents, um, who most of which I'm fine with now, but 
most of which it's an interesting thing because the agents were, um, you know, they were, it was behind the scenes. Agents are good at that. That's what they yeah. do. You know, they, they have meet, uh, members in the media and thing. So, but when I was, I was really pissed about it then, but when I look back on it, I'm actually like, I get it. I, I, I understand it in business. In business, when you, it's a scary thing when you think something's going to, you know, you have two choices in business. I just read um, Bob Iger's book. And he was talking about, you know, as streaming came in at Disney, the, you know, this big entertainment company, they had no presence. So you had to embrace it and and adapt to it or you fight it. And so I see, you know, when I look back and I'm like, I don't, I get what the agents were scared about and, and, and upset with us about and they were like, oh, this way that we do things could change. So we need to fight it. We needed to fail. You know, it'd be like, it, it'd be like Disney, Universal, uh, Time Warner, all going, we need Netflix to fail. Yeah. Because otherwise, if they get bit, which they have, right, then shit is different now. But you really, you should embrace it. But agents were going, wait a minute, now this is a player whose friends are going to represent him. If this works... What does that mean for us? Yeah. Right? And the truth is, agents still exist. It hasn't changed. Good ones. Yeah, the good, exactly. <laughs> the good ones still exist, and they're big, and they're doing great. And they embraced it on some level, right? On some level, you know, I hear about players now who sign, and the agent has to hire their friend or but whatever. Yeah. But back then, it was none of that. It was just like an agent, you know, an AAU coach, or somebody put you with an agent, and that was kind of the agent did everything for you. So that was one hurdle, and as I look back on it, I'm like, I get it. I'm, you know what I'm saying? There were other hurdles with, with players in the league. And so, but but those were some of the hurdles that we dealt with for sure. Yeah, I, I think none of the agents wanted to become the blockbuster. Exactly. <laughs> which which I understand. Yeah. When I, you know, I was pissed about it then because I was in it. I was like, you know, I left Nike. I'm going to represent LeBron. Um, by the way, I wasn't even an agent personally, but I'm going to represent him off the court. But I, but, I understand if you're an agent who's been doing something a certain way or or any person in business for 15 or 20 years and has been really good to you and now this thing shows up that could disrupt it that's that's scary but that's how life goes you either have to embrace it and get ready for it if you recognize it and go oh shit this is going to work or you fight it and if you fight it a lot of times you could become blockbuster yeah. right so what's going on? I got something else for you. It's a wireless world, and everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds. But before you go dropping hundreds of dollars on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. You already know Raycon earbuds start at about half the price of other premium wireless earbuds on the market. They sound just as amazing, and top audio brands you know. And Raycon's latest model, E25, is the best one yet. It comes with six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and that's never a bad thing, banging out. A compact design that gives you a nice noise-isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable, perfect for on-the-go listening and taking phone calls. For me, it's a game changer. When I'm in the gym, yeah, I'm in the gym lately, I could be doing sprints, dribbling, lifting weights, if I can have a quick timeout for a business call, I handle my business and get right back to the workout. 
Unlike some of your other wireless options, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet with no dangling wires or stems. You heard me talk about how the company was co-founded by Ray J and celebrities like Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, and Brandy are obsessed with Raycons. Pick up your pair and see what the hype is all about. So check this out. I got something special for you. Now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash toughjuice. That's buyraycon.com slash toughjuice. So that's raycon.com slash toughjuice for 15% off your new Raycon wireless earbuds. Buyraycon.com slash toughjuice. It's a must. Go get that. I, I know it's a tough question. I don't want to make it a white-black thing, but being black men in that space, do you think that was some of it too? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you you being a black man in America, being a black man in the world, black always comes into it, right? Like, I'm always black. Everywhere yeah. I go, I'm black. I show I'm up, I'm black. apologetic with it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm black. So, um, so I think it definitely was a... Um, was a was a played a part, and I think most mostly was like you know um, the idea of credentials comes into play, of like how can you do this? You never did this, this, and this. You don't have the backing. You don't have the certificates. And I think as black people, you know, we've always been denied the opportunity to get any credentials or certificates or whatever the fuck you want me to have yeah. to do this job, but. If I show up like I've read, I've studied, I've, I've, I'm ready to learn, I think I could do the job. Uh, I don't have the credentials, but as a as a forget me as an individual, but black people as a whole, we the system is not exactly set up for us to be able to go down the path to even get the credentials, the certificates. Then even if we do, it's still another bunch of set of hurdles to get to that level. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I think black being black painted played a part in it. I want to go to like one of the biggest moments in sports history that probably sparked the idea of <laughs> uninterrupted and all that happening, the decision. Mm-hmm. Like when y'all came up with the decision, like what was the the mindset behind that? What was the did you get what you wanted? Is something that you probably would have changed or done differently now that you yeah, look back at uh, it? I would say our our goal, like everything we had done up to that point, and since that point was to do something that had never been done before. A, B was to pay it forward and help people, um, was to see um really do something different and, and and something that would be big and and really something that would reverberate outside of sports and through culture and life. Um, so I think we achieved all those things. I think it was different. Yeah. No one had ever done anything like that. Um, the three and a half million dollars that we, you know, we took the media rights. I shouldn't say we took. In partnership with ESPN, we own that hour of, of um, network TV, of cable TV on ESPN, sold it. We sold all those ads and gave that three and a half million dollars away. Which doesn't get talked about enough. Fine with me. Yeah. Right? Those people got the money. So they <laughs> feel um, and then... Um, it reverberated outside of sports. It became a moment that here we are 10 years later and it's still talked about outside of sports. So we accomplished all those things. Did we think it would ever in a million years could be as bad as it was uh, perception-wise and PR was? Hell no. We had no idea. 
And the truth of the matter is, I'm kind of glad we didn't. Because if we knew it could be that bad, it might have deterred us from doing it, which would have been a mistake ultimately. Even though it sucked going through it and that, you know, that day to that 365 days later sucked and was hard. But if we'd have known it could be that bad, I'm not sure. I'm I'm almost certain we would have said, let's not do it. Um, But, you know, hindsight is 2020 because it worked out. Um, But yeah, that was was a big moment for us. Yeah, I I thought it was amazing. And, uh, the way you guys handle it, you know what I mean? And the production of LeBron, all of a sudden, he he becomes this villain in a lot of people's eyes. Like, did that bother him? Did that bother you guys? And how were you able to pivot I would and say get it, some momentum in another direction? I would say it bothered me. Um, it bothered me more so because my f- friend, my best friend, was going through this moment that was very hard for him that there was nothing I could do, zero I could do to change it, to help him. And I felt I took a lot of ownership and the responsibility for him going through that. Um, but honestly, going through it now, looking back on it 10 years, you realize, you know, a good story has ups and downs and character arcs. So it was all a part of the story and the ups and downs and the twists and turns and the arc of the character and the person and the human that is LeBron James. So um, at the time, it was very hard for me because it was just like I just had to sit there and watch my friend go through this shit, and I was I was responsible for it. And um, that part was hard. Yeah, but now you're responsible for uninterrupted in a yeah. major way. So speak of, you know, I've done a ton of work with you guys. Yeah, appreciate and, it always. Yeah, I loved it, man. Great partnership. Like, what are you trying to do going forward in the future with Uninterrupted? Yeah, what we'd like to do, you know, our brand, our company, Uninterrupted, is is right from the beginning, we always wanted to empower athletes. And um, about, I think it's now two years ago, we kind of nailed our manifesto, our tagline, our just do it is I am more than an athlete. And what we really strive to do uh, day in and day out is to really build an athlete empowerment brand. And on one side, we empower athletes to tell stories that they care about, that matter to them. And on the other side, through those stories, uh, empower consumers and audiences to, to really take something away, not just putting content or products or putting on events just for the sake of doing it. We want to do it with with the, the, the thread, the feeling of empowerment on both sides of the creators and the people who are consuming it. Yeah. And, and also another show that you created, uh, <laughs> The Shop. And that's like one of my personal favorites. Uh, where did that concept come from? That concept was started by um, uh, my partner, Randy Mims, and uh, the guy who heads up marketing for us, Paul Rivera, and my partner. And they had the idea um, of take just taking the idea of a very simple idea, which is true to all of us, which is... Um, you know, when you grow up in the hood, the place that you got all the the most knowledge was like at the barbershop because you had <laughs> different. It, it was where like all parts of the neighborhood and the and the black experience came to meet on the male side. So if you didn't have a dad at home, or you were like me, my dad was in jail. But every time I went to the barbershop, there was male figures there who were. There was drug dealers, there was the working man, there were older guys, you know, there was old man Jim who had been working at the rubber factory for 30 years. 
There was the new hot drug dealer with his hot <laughs> car parked outside. There was the guys who went to every football game across the, you know, it was just all, there was the firefighter was in there. Everybody was in there and you got to hear these conversations. And it usually was cool because, and it's what we try and do on the show, is you bring people from all different walks of life and very diverse group and have a conversation about topics that everybody can contribute to the conversation. So you'd be in that barbershop as a kid and it's like, you know, the, the last night's football game would come up or the Million Man March was about to happen and you hear like the drug dealer's perspective and the working man's perspective and the older guy's perspective and the younger and you just soak all that in. So they wanted, they actually had the idea Randy and, and PR is doing as a podcast at first and we were like, no, fuck that. We should actually shoot it. Um, and to his credit, a guy who used to be the chief marketing officer at Beats, Omar Johnson, was like, let's shoot it as content. And we did the first one and all-star game in Toronto and just built on it and built on it. And HBO saw what we were doing. It was like, we want to make this a show. And that's how it came to be. Every episode has been crazy, but the the pay for play was the one that just kind of just took the world by storm. And I think, what was it, Governor? Governor Newsom. Yeah, yeah, he came over. He came on the show and he's just like, you know what? We need to sign this and get this thing in motion. Like, what was your feeling and how powerful of a moment was that for you as you look back at it? Um, as I look back at that moment, it was just gigantic. It was, um, you know, first off, to have the governor want to do that. He wanted to sign the bill on the show. It was just amazing to us. And, you know, we're a show that is about conversation. So, you, you know, anybody who wanted to, we would have been fine with somebody who wanted to disagree with him to come on and have that conversation with him, but it was a moment that was really meaningful for the show because it, it cemented that feeling of empowerment, empowering the, the, the governor. Obviously, it was a very powerful job to do something, but also he was passing on that feeling of empowerment to, to college students. So it was kind of the epitome of what uninterrupted of what we stand for as a company. And then the show is the shop. It was because we had Diana Tarazi there, and we had the governor, we had men, women, we had everybody kind of conversating on this topic and from different perspectives. We had an agent in the room with Rich Paul and we had, you know, Ed O'Bannon who played a long time ago. So we just had all these different takes on what was what, what was happening. Ultimately, when you look at, you know, your legacy, you're doing pretty much everything. You're doing gaming shows, you did Survivor's Remorse, you're doing The Shop, you run Interrupted, Spring Hill Entertainment, all the things that you have going on. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, you know, I never, like, look at it that way. I just look at, like, okay, what what do, meaning I don't look at it and go, like, what do I want people to remember me as? I, I, you know, I think, I guess I'm probably too young, you know, to think about that. But, I, you know, I just think about, like, what type of company do we want to be? And what I'd love to build is to build a company that truly becomes the most culturally inspired entertainment company in the world that really sets out to empower the whole world. And on one side of that world, you're going to have creators creating with us, creating content, coming up with ideas, creating products, doing events. And on one side, have consumers and audience that is a generation that would truly feel the way LeBron personally made me feel, which was extremely empowered. Yeah, we look at the end game and I'm, st I'm starting to see some of the things that's come together and I always shoot you a text and say, you know, bro, I saw that. That's that's powerful. Uh, one of the moments, I was in studio at NBA TV. 
and I'm calling the game, and at the end, we had to sign off. And obviously, we always signing off on something that's monumental in sports. We addressed the crowd at first with the news of, you know, the commissioner and his situation, brain hemorrhage. And then we go back, and we left on a high note. LeBron James, being in Akron, watching his son, Bronny, play on that platform. I know how I felt. And I'm not even part of the, you know, the small circle of friendship that you guys have. But how did that make you feel in that moment? First of all, I actually text LeBron. Me and LeBron were going back on text on our group chat. And I was saying to him, the first thing was um, because the team they played was he and I's alma mater. That's crazy. Um, And it was uh, Coach Drew, who was my uh, junior, senior. He was an assistant there. And then he took over. And he's been the head coach there since 2001. So he's almost 20 years been the head coach. He's 20 years been there as an assistant and the head coach. But he coached LeBron since he was nine years old. And his son and LeBron are best friends to this day. So Coach Drew's still the coach. So I told LeBron, I, was, I wasn't at the game, but I was watching it. It felt weird to root against St. V for the first time in my life. Um, that, felt, that part felt really strange, like not wanting St. V to win, wanting to see uh, uh, my nephew, you know, ball and get his and get a win for his team. So that part felt weird. But to see LeBron and Savannah, his wife, um, there at that game was just amazing. It was just an amazing moment to see the family that they've built and the son, their oldest son, they have a middle son and a daughter, just an amazing uh, group that they've, they've built. And you think about, you know, they met when they were in high school and, and LeBron's a kid at a project from the projects who saw, you know, uh, chaos and disarray all around him, and no, you know, in the projects there's nobody with like a very strong family uh, structure, and to be able to build that is just very strong and empowering. I think you know, I think of all the great things he's done, um, athletically, business-wise, building a school. I think the greatest thing he's done and built is his family. Yeah. The best piece of advice you ever received, and I know you've been around a, a wealth of knowledge, you know, uh, what was it and from who? Um, the best piece of advice I ever received was um, the one that comes in my head right away was a, a very simple line uh, from Jimmy Iovine, which was, um, if the shit gets bigger than the cat, get rid of the cat. That's deep. Yeah, that was a simple line, but makes a lot of sense. And you can apply it to all parts of your life. I remember, I'll leave you with this. I remember when uh, I was doing my first sideline reporting for TNT. And I How said, long you been reporting now? How long you been? I've been doing it now like for four it, years. Four years? Yeah. You enjoy it? I love it. I, I really do. I love it, man. Because it's so many layers of the discussion that you can go into. And being a former player, I think I feel exactly what the moment is, you know, like, so I know kind of, like, what to tap into. Yeah. But this first time, I was a little nervous to ask certain questions. You know what I mean? Because I didn't want to go there with players and be, go too in-depth. But I remember walking past you, and I knew LeBron was going to be the post-game guy because the Lakers just won. And I said, man, what should I ask? You know, drop, like, give me something that, I'm, you know, the post of the game, whatever the case you said. Talk to him about his school. And, you know, that's... Those are the questions that I wish people would have walked off and kind of highlighted, you know, with me, you know, or say something about, uh, damn, you know, your, your son just had an amazing night. How did, what was that moment like 
last night being in Akron and then all of a sudden coming back to Atlanta and getting another quality win. But that's the shit that don't get talked about of enough. Course. And his face just lit up. It's like, damn, damn, see, I'm glad you asked that. So that was a great lob by you, man. Yeah, I just appreciate had to say thank it. you appreciate for that. It. Appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. And another lob, man, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you man. for having this me, man. Time. I'm glad you're doing this show. It's amazing, man. This is this is what we this is what I want. I love seeing this. This is awesome for me to be able to be a guest on your show. Yep. 100 G. Appreciate it. You owe me a hand of pity pat too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs>